Well, if you do this, would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word? We are in 2 Corinthians. We're continuing our series on the gospel for the week. If you're looking for a message title, the title of the message is A Life Controlled by Love. A Life Controlled by Love. That's the title for this week and, haha, next week as well. Part two, A Life Controlled by Love. A Life Controlled by Love, part one. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 through 15. And the Apostle Paul says this, So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we have been made manifest to God, and I hope that we have been made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to boast of us. So that you, you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance, but not in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. And if we, are, if we are of right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live will no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Well, could we pray and ask God's blessing over this text in our time in his word? Oh, Father, I'm truly unworthy to even open this book, to even read this text, to even preach this message. Would you use uh, my word, would you use the word, would you make my words your words this morning? Would you help us to capture what did the author intend for these Corinthians to understand from this book? And then let's make that leap, that giant leap to application so that the Word of God would once again be the authority in our life, would be what is sufficient. The Word of God would be what shows us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. That we could be equipped as disciple makers. May the word of God do the work that it did in Timothy's life. It showed him salvation. God, would your word do that for us this morning? Would you, let, would you help your word to, to bring us more and more into transformation and renewal? More and more to your image. More and more like you. Would you let your word be something that brings us to the highest and loftiest goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. May we enjoy you today in your word. May we understand what you've had to say to us through it. And God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate you being here. I really appreciate it. Um, so if you've been here with us throughout this whole time, you kind of know we're preaching through 2 Corinthians and the message theme of all of Corinthians, the whole book, we've kind of given it this theme, calling it the gospel for the what? For the week. One person knows it, right? Let me say, the gospel for the what? The week. I love this book. It's, it's very unique. Paul defends himself over and over through this book saying, saying, I the authenticity of my ministry is proven not by how great of a speaker I am, well, he wasn't that great of a speaker, or how great my presence is, but it's actually proven in all the weaknesses that I have been through near death so many times 
It has made me rely on the strength of Christ in him alone. That is the seal of my apostleship. He's proving this over and over. So that's what's happening continually through this whole entire book. And today, he talks about a life controlled by love. And this week, part one is, it's a life controlled by love. This is going to be weird. By defending his ministry, right? By defending the integrity of his ministry. I hate defending myself. You ever had to defend yourself for right reasons? I hate doing that kind of stuff. I despise it. Right now, sometimes people defend themselves out of pride. But Paul here, there's no pride in in what he's doing. He is defending the integrity of his ministry for the love of Christ controls him to do such. There's no pride in him for what he's doing. He's doing this for a good reason. That's part one. Now, next week, we'll look at part two being controlled by love. And this idea of love controls us to be ministers of reconciliation. So we'll look at that next week. But this week, it's this idea of a life controlled by love. He defends his ministry for the glory of God and their good. Now, just to give a a back reset of the last couple weeks. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about this idea of not losing heart, right? The gospel for the week, not losing heart. Remember, Paul had talked about not losing heart in chapter 3, verse 18, all the way to chapter 5, verse 9. Not losing heart because we have salvation. The light of the gospel, like the light of creation, has come into our life. He talks about that's the reason he doesn't lose heart, because he has Jesus. He talks about not losing heart because of some some areas of what we call sanctification, being transformed into Christ's image in chapter 3, verse 18, being renewed day by day by the Spirit. It's the weight of glory in chapter 4, verse 16. Then ultimately, he doesn't lose heart because of glorification in the future. There's a glory to come. This, this, this outer shell will actually one day be glorified. It'll be with the Lord. All things will be as it should be. So that ends this kind of idea that from chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 5, verse 9, this idea of not losing heart. We took three messages to do that. Now, today, we look at a new section. If you're kind of a person that likes to see a thought through, you really can look at chapter 5 and verse um, 11 and go all the way to chapter 6, verse 10, and that always kind of is packaged together in one package. We're going to not do that in one message, but it's kind of a package together where once again, He's bringing some defense for his ministry and why he does what he does. Now, here's the thing I want to tee off on, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It controls him. It controls what he does. And I'll I'll lay out how that connects to verse 11 and 12 and 13 and 15 here in just a moment. But the point I want you to see in verse 14 is this idea that the love of Christ controls us? What a great question. Does the love of Christ control us? Does Christ's love control us? Does Christ's love for us, does it control how we love our wife? Does it control how we love our husband? Does the love of Christ control us? Does it control how we forgive? Does it control how we give? Does it control how we go to school? Does it control how we homeschool? Does it control us? Does it control us when sinful desires lurch up and creep up among us? Does it control us when we say no to sin and yes to God? Does it control us? Does it control us when we want to lose heart? And instead of focusing on the thoughts that God wants us to heart, does it control us? Does the love of Christ control us? Does the love of Christ control how we witness to others and declare the gospel? Does it control the time of our life? 
Does it control what we do with our free time? Does it control us? Does it control how we discipline our kids, right? A lot of times we discipline our kids out of, out of anger, out of uh, we've been inconvenienced. The discipline of our kid is for the glory of God and their good to bring correction, right? Does the love of Christ control us? Does, it, does the love of Christ control? What a great question to ask, I think. Lord, does your love control what I do? Why do we do what we do? Paul comes in this text and he's telling us the love of Christ controls us. And the idea in verse 11 through 13 is really the idea that the love of Christ controls Paul in such a way for the glory of God and their good, he defends the integrity of his ministry to them. And it's an important reason, and we'll get into the reasons for that. Then, like I said, next week we'll look into the love of Christ controlling this idea of doing the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people, people far from God to God. Now, before we go too far, I want to do this. If you're here and maybe you're not in Christ, maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I want you to look down at verse 15 and notice something very interesting. Just a question. It's a good question. Now, the question is, does the love of Christ control us? But a bigger question before you ask, does the love of Christ control us? The question one must ask is, is Christ even in my life? Is there even any potential for Christ to control me? He says in verse 15 something interesting. Actually, we'll start in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one... Does anybody know who the one is right here? Jesus, right? If you don't know the right answer at all times, just say Jesus, right? You've got like a 99% chance of having it right. And that one died for all. So Jesus dies for all. Therefore, all died. Now, lest you think here in the text he's talking about everybody automatically has universal salvation and that Jesus died for everybody's sins in such a way that everybody is automatically saved and going to heaven, that's not what it's saying. That's not the totality of the Scripture. He says in verse 14 that one died for all, therefore all died. He's making the point is that all have died because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, all of us have a sinful nature. All of us are hell-bound. All of us want our elbow room from God. All of us are in cosmic treason. All have died. And then Jesus comes and when he dies, he dies, he dies, he dies for the sin of the world, the scriptures say. Now we can get at this point into the debate of what's called limited and unlimited atonement. That's not the point of this message. We can have that debate. Let's talk about it. But that's really not his point in the text ultimately. He's trying to get to something more. But I want, I want you to notice this. He died for all, therefore all died. Meaning, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I need need you to understand something. Your sins are holding you over the precipice of hell. And Christ has come to snatch you and save you from this. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your disobedience to God. You're dead. Only Christ can rescue you. That's why he came. He died for all, therefore all have died. Now, if you're a person who hangs in the balance of limited and unlimited atonement and that idea, and if you're kind of like, I don't even know what you said when you said that, Nick, then don't worry about it right now. But I will say this. His sacrifice was sufficient for all, but applicable to those that would come to him. Because look in the text, you, see, you do see something very interesting, verse 15. And that he died for all so that they who live. Notice that. So that they who live. Meaning, not everybody's going to have this salvation. Not everybody. Now, 
I'm not talking about the tension behind the scenes of this whole limited and unlimited atonement here. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get this point of this. Christ dies. He dies for your sin. But on this side of, of the curtain, all you need to be concerned with is, have you made him your Lord and Savior? Have you responded to the gospel call? Because you look in the text, it says, and that he died for all so that, what does it say? They who live. Meaning not all would come to faith. Not all would be in Christ. Not all would trust. Not all would repent and believe. But those who live. Those who live. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I may encourage you with this. Christ died for your sin according to the Scripture. And that today, by faith, you can call out to Him. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that He died for all and that they who live... That means there's going to be some that's, that are not going to call upon him. There are going to be some that the death of Jesus for sin is not applied to their account, but there would be some. It says that they who live, they who live, are you living today? There is no ability for Christ to be controlled by the love of Christ until you are actually alive to Christ. At 16, I became alive to Christ. Before 16, I was dead to Christ. I still remember it, and you all know it. If I say I was the wrong age, you'd all correct me. I remember at 16, the book of Romans on my parents' tan couch. I remember that's where I became alive to Christ. That's where's the opportunity for Christ to control my life. But if you're not in Christ today, if you've never admitted your sin, admitted your rebellion, admitted that you can't save yourself, admitted that you deserve the judgment and wrath of God, my friends, today you can live. You can live. I can remember calling out to him, and as sure as I called out to him that day, he became my Lord and my God. Have you asked him as your Savior? Have you prayed to him? Have you trusted in him as your Savior? If you have, I want to encourage you, follow him in believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. The scripture talks about this idea of coming to Christ, and then after that, following him in what's called a Christian baptism. Follow him. Now, I point this out in verse 15, just in 14 and 15, not because that's the, the bulk of the message, but just to kind of give you this understanding this message is about the love of Christ controls us. And the love of Christ cannot control someone in which Christ is not living. And here's the benefit of salvation. Not only when you get salvation do you get, um, do you get your sins forgiven, but you get God right now. You get God right now. He lives within you. What a greater, greater reason to get saved than to know that God can be with you right now. To know that there is actually something um, eternal living in you right now. That's the promise that he's given. Now, the, the, the title of our message is this idea of being controlled by the love of Christ. What controls you? Well, oh, I forgot something this morning uh, for our sermon. You know, I forgot something. Would you perhaps give me maybe 10 to 20 seconds to grab something that I forgot for this sermon? Would, could I have your permission to do that? Now, I know what you're all thinking, Nick, you're going to sneak off and go to the bathroom. You've done this. You pulled this trick before, Nick. Not true. Not true. I went to the bathroom twice right before service, right? So, like, bladder is okay. That was more information than you wanted, right? Okay? So, y'all just hang with me, right? Don't make this weird. I, I forget things sometimes, right? Do y'all ever forget things? I forget things all the time. We've been working hard at the church, by the way. Man, haven't we been working hard? Amen? Amen, man, we've been working hard. And my legs are kind of tired. 
You ever feel like your legs are tired, like you're tired of walking? I'm kind of I'm tired of walking. I promise I'm coming back. Don't make this weird. I was just washing my hands. I was messing with you. Mm, mm. What's up, Tim? My legs are just a little tired. What's up? Have you ever been on one of these scooters before? This is too neat. I've been looking at this floor thinking, what can I do on this floor that I can't do on most times? And just like a scooter or something, how fun would this be? Are y'all jealous right now? Yes. What's up, Daniel? Hey. How you doing today? Pretty doing good. good. I'd be better if I was on scooter. I know, you would be doing so much better. So what's interesting is, by the way, um, this scooter was my dad's, right? Um, in his final days, he couldn't really walk very well because his legs were weak, right? So let me ask you a question. Is this kind of ridiculous that I'm riding around on this, right? Because I really don't need it, right? I don't, I don't actually need it. But there's, by the way, it goes in reverse. Are you amazed that it can go in reverse? It's pretty nice. So here's the thing about this. Are, are you controlled, are we controlled by Christ? Is the love of Christ control us? Well, the question is this. It depends on who's sitting in the seat. Whoever's sitting in the seat is the one that controls us. Or what is sitting in the seat is what controls us. So, by the way, I'm going to turn this off right now because I don't want to drain the battery down and ruin the end of my illustration and embarrass myself, Right? By the way, I'm going to go ahead and take the key out because I don't trust y'all up front here. <laughs> take off, right? We're, we're living in Memphis, guys. You just don't know what's going to happen. The love of Christ controls us. What's ever sitting in the seat will control you. So when we ask this question, what's controlling you? What controls you? The question is, really, what's in the seat is what's controlling you. What's in the seat is controlling where you go. Oh, you're going to go somewhere. But what's in the seat? Is the substance controlling you? Is it, is, it, is it making sex more than good but a God controlling you? Is the fear of man controlling us? The fear of man. We're afraid what, what, what power someone has over us. Is it the fear of the unknown? Whatever is sitting in the chair is what is controlling our life. Now, what I love about verse 14, if you look at it, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. So for Paul, he said, what's actually controlling my life is Christ. Nothing else, just Christ. Now, what's interesting, when you look at the text and see this idea of the love of Christ controls us, you look at verse 15 and he says, so that they who live would no longer live for, what does it say? For what? For what? Okay, good. We got it. But for him who died and rose again. 
I love that he points out this idea that the love of Christ is controlling me. And the love of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, I, I no longer live for myself, but I live for him. Whatever is in the seat is what's actually controlling our life. It's either Christ or it's some idol. That's how it usually works. What is controlling us? Now, it's interesting in our text today, Paul says the love of Christ controls him, and the love of Christ controlled him in such a way that he would defend the integrity of his ministry. Now, that sounds really weird. Why would Paul have to defend the integrity of his ministry? Well, I can tell you, he was doing it for the glory of God and the good of others. That's why. Christ was ruling and reigning in the seat, and it was steering and controlling what he did. So he made a defense for his ministry for good reason. It wasn't for selfish reasons. The, the self wasn't sitting in the seat for him right here. It was the glory of God and the good of others. Now, I'm just be honest with you. If I was Paul at this point, man, have you ever helped somebody so much and they just turned your back on you in the last moment or in the moment of where you're, you really needed them and you just thought, man, get out of my life forever. You ever been there before where someone has just crossed you? Like you gave a lot to a person. You did a lot for them. And then they crossed you. I don't know any, I mean, when you look at what the Corinthian church had done to Paul, that's where I would want to be. If I was Paul, I would have already written these guys off. I would have just, you know, kind of been like, I hope you go to hell, right? I mean, if you're just being honest, I mean, how bad these guys have treated Paul. And Paul is sitting in the seat of the love of Christ. The love of Christ is driving what he does he doesn't grow bitter, but better in his response to them. He even says, I need to defend my ministry to you. Not because I'm really concerned about what you think about me, but I'm concerned about Christ in you. So he defends it because of the love of Christ is controlling what he does. The love of Christ found in the gospel message. The love of Christ found in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Now, look at verse 11. Let me point out a couple things if you're a person who's taking notes. Point number one is this. The love of Christ controlled Paul to defend the integrity of his ministry for the glory of God and their good because, because a day of judgment was coming. A day of judgment was coming. Now, if you look at verse 11, he says this. So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, just so you understand verse 11... He is pointing to verse 10, which last week we talked about. And this judgment in verse 10 is really the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul says, I need to defend my ministry to you because I know the fear of the Lord. I know there's going to be a day you're before the judgment seat of Christ. I need to defend my ministry because my ministry has not only taught you who Christ is, but what Christ does. And if, if, if my ministry is taken away, if it's abrogated in your mind, in your life, you're going to go astray. There are these false teachers that have come in, Corinthians, and they're teaching you things that are not what I've taught you. And, I've, and they're saying things about me that aren't true. They're saying things such as, because I didn't charge you anything to do ministry, that I'm not a legitimate, not a legitimate apostle. They're saying things, and they're trying to drag you into false teaching. Corinthians, I can't let that happen because I know the fear of the Lord. There'll come a day when you're standing before God, and I have a responsibility to you. Now, I'm telling you, at this point, unless we're sitting in the seat of Christ, unless Paul is sitting in the seat of Christ, he would probably have punted on first down with these people, right? But he says, no, uh-uh, 
No. The day of the Lord is coming. I fear that for you. So look what he says. In result, we, what do we do to men? We what? We persuade them. I'm needing to persuade you of the integrity of my ministry for the glory of God and your good so that you're not led astray from all these false teachers that have come in. Now, by the way, although I believe the text of verse 11 is referring to the judgment, the fear of the Lord for the judgment seat of Christ is coming for believers, just remember, the judgment seat of Christ is not one of condemnation for believers, but is one of evaluation for believers. But don't think that it's going to be a day when all of our motivations are laid bare before a holy God that he's just going to go, oh, Nick, bless your heart, right? No, it's going to be tried by fire. I will not be condemned. I will be evaluated. And that is a day that I should fear. We need to be careful that we don't sanitize the word fear too much. It, there is a holy reverence for a holy God. But not only the idea right here in verse 11 is not only the judgment seat of Christ for believers in verse 10, but you can't help but also know in the back of his mind, he still is thinking of the judgment of Christ, the white throne judgment for unbelievers that is coming. Like why does he continue to persuade men of, the, of who Jesus is? Because there is a day of judgment coming. Oh, friends, there is a day of judgment coming. I like this word he says, persuade. Doesn't that really go against the kind of evangelism we're taught nowadays? We're taught this. Be their friend and earn a right to give them the gospel. And someday, maybe you'll get the opportunity. Now, I, I do think you should try to be friends with everybody you can, and you should love them. But... But don't forget this. The Bible talks about this idea of trying to persuade people, right? Of this idea of, friend, there is coming a day when your life will be over. Your life is a vapor. And you will meet face to face with a holy God. And if you have not bowed the knee to him, you'll bow the knee in condemnation someday. Friend, trust Christ right now. That's why he says we persuade men because of the day of the Lord. Now to get this, we only do that if Christ is sitting in the seat of control. If the love of Christ is, is controlling the seat of where this, the card is going in our life. Why don't we tell people about Jesus more? I'll be honest. We don't fear the judgment of the Lord for people. We don't. If we really thought that the a holy God in his white, hot, holy anger against sin was real, we wouldn't be so fearful of what our neighbors thought about us if we told them about the good news. We'd be more fearful of what it looks like for our neighbor to spend eternity in a place called hell, in a place where the wrath of God is poured out to its end. Wow. So he says this in verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But remember, it's, it's two-pronged here. It's not only the, the just for unbelievers, but even believers, he's... I mean, even as a pastor, I can tell you this. There is nothing in my soul that likes to confront people. I do not like it. Anybody like confrontation, right? I do not like it. We got, we, we got like two people that like it, right? Man, bless you. If you're not in ministry, go into ministry, please, right? I promise you, you're going to get all you want, right? You, it, it's like a buffet line, right? I know they don't exist anymore, but they do in ministry. I can tell you this. I hate it. I don't like it. I get knots in my stomach. If I ever have to talk to somebody or correct somebody in my mind, I just like, oh, could I just be an evangelist who preaches a message and like leaves 
and go somewhere else and like I don't have to confront tough things? Can we just drop this whole discipline thing? Can we just, oh, it'd be so much easier, God. Can't I just love you and your word and just be silent, right? That's what I want sometimes. But the seed of Christ won't let me, right? His love controls me. So much so that it's like, hey, as a shepherd, I know that one day we're going to stand before the Lord. And I don't want that to be bad for us. I don't want that to be bad for you. Therefore, I'll risk the relationship to have a conversation that might be awkward. How many awkward conversations have we been willing to have with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Because we're more fearful of them than we are loving of Christ. And I'm telling you. Whatever is sitting in the seat is what controls. Does the love of Christ control us? For Paul it did. He said, I, I got to defend my ministry to you for your good. So I'm going to persuade you. I'm going to persuade you. The fear of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. So that's point number one. Because of the God's judgment day was coming. Point number two is because it was clear his motives were pure. It's clear his motives were pure. So the love of Christ controlled Paul in defending the integrity of his ministry for the glory of God and their good, not only because the judgment day was coming, but number two, it was clear that his motives were pure. Now, the false teachers were telling the Corinthians, oh, Paul's motives aren't pure. Paul's motives aren't pure. He's got other motives. He's got ulterior motives. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Look in the text. Paul says, nope, but we have been made manifest to God, clear to God. And I hope that we have been made manifest clear also in your consciences. He says, I want you to know, all the ministry I've ever done to you, I did it with a clear conscience and I'm clear before the Lord. You need not listen to these false teachers. They're trying to lead you astray from Christ. I'm trying to lead you back to the seat of Christ, right? I I want him to be the one that's controlling you. And Christ's love is controlling me enough that I would risk defending my ministry and risk what you're probably going to think of me Because really, I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about the glory of God and your good. Have you ever, I'm telling you, this is one of the hardest things. Have you ever had to defend yourself? And it just, you ended up just defending yourself and walking in pride as you did it. Ever done that before, right? I think we all know what that's right. Have you ever defended yourself and did it in such a way that it had nothing to do with you? You were just doing it for really the glory of God and the good of that person, right? Like as a parent, there might be times where you've disciplined your kids and your kids were, you know, still kicking rocks about it. And yet you, set, you had to sit them down and go like, hey, like daddy didn't discipline you because I was just frustrated with you. I did this because God loves you and God wants daddy to discipline you in such a way that you change and you realize that you need Christ, right? Now, I mean, taking the time to make those explanations even when we discipline our children, ever notice many times when we discipline our kids, we don't even take time. To, we, we don't even take time to slow down and use that discipline as an instrument of redemption. A lot of times, when we discipline our kids, we don't tell them why we're disciplining them. We try to just accomplish it real fast, and then we want to get on to our to-do list for the day. But no, not when we sit in the seat of Christ. When Christ is controlling us, we see the discipline of our kids as an opportunity, an opportunity to show how holy God is, how much they're loved. When was the last time even when we disciplined our kids, we stopped? And before we disciplined, before we gave them a, a, a holy spanking, right, if you got younger kids, right, that we would explain to them what they've done, explain to them why we're doing this, discipline them rightly, and then wrap our arms around them and say, I love you, and hug them and hold them. 
if we're sitting in the seat of Christ and Christ is controlling us, that's how it goes down. If pride is sitting in the seat, we're simply disciplining our kids because we're inconvenienced. We want them to shut up or to cooperate. And we want to look good in front of others while we're in the restaurant. We don't know anything about that, correct? Okay. Like the only people are like that. Well, my kids are grown, so I don't know what that's talking about anymore, right? By the way, what's really great is um, I, I knew how to be a perfect parent before I had kids. <laughs> and then it changed for some reason. I, I remember we'd be in a restaurant, and you'd see someone's kids, and you'd think, well, my kids will never act like that. I was like, man, the Lord can humble you, right? So he says this, I have clear motive. My motives are pure in everything that I'm doing. My, I want you to know that, that, my, that your conscience needs to be clear about why I'm doing ministry to you. I'm clear before God. And a person can only say that kind of thing when they really are motivated by the love of Christ. And here's how we know sometimes even are we motivated by the love of Christ for what we do. Is if people bite you back, <laughs> do you bite back? Like, as a, like this past week I was talking to a pastor, um, one of my students in, in one of my classes, and, um, and we were just talking. And, um, and this happens with a lot of pastors, actually. Actually, I was at a conference, and I was doing kind of a panel discussion a couple weeks ago and just talking about what happens when sheep bite, right? Sheep bite. And as a shepherd, how do you know you're actually controlled by Christ? It's this. And I've, I've discovered this as a shepherd, that if sheep bite back and I bite back, it's not Christ that's controlling me. It's my own selfish, self-centered, exalting of self, right? Because sheep are going to bite, and instead of biting back as a shepherd, I mean, how weird would that look for a shepherd? Like a sheep to nip at a shepherd, and the shepherd just to take over and just bite him back, right? I, just a mouthful of wool. How gross would that be, right? Ugh, yeah, I can't even think of it. But no, what does a shepherd do? do, do? Sometimes he the sheep doesn't know his voice, so he spends more time with the sheep. Sometimes he uses the instruments of discipline and redemption to bring the sheep back, but he doesn't bite the sheep. But a pastor will bite a sheep if he's not sitting in the seat of Christ. Does the, does the love of Christ control us? Does the love of Christ control? Paul said, my motives are pure. Man, that's where I want to be. So that's point number two. Point number three in our text is this. So we've already seen that the love of Christ controlled Paul to defend the integrity of his ministry for the glory of God and their good because the judgment day was coming in verse 11 because his motives were clear and pure at the end of verse 11. Now in verse 12, so that they could defend Paul against false accusations. So they could defend Paul. So they could defend him against false accusations. Look in verse 12. Paul says this. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to boast of us. So that you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance but not in heart. In appearance but not in heart. So what happened is these false apostles, false teachers were coming in and going. And you see this later in the book. Paul, man, his bodily presence is weak. He's not much to look at. Look at all he's suffering. It doesn't appear that God's in his ministry because he suffers so much. Yeah, a lot of people may profess him, but he... He just doesn't smell like success. Look at him. He's beat to a pulp. Look how much he suffers. He, his appearance doesn't look very great. This can't be a guy that God is using. We need, a, we need a guy like Saul who stands above everybody, not a guy like David who's after the heart of God. And what Paul says is, no, i got to defend my ministry. i got to let you know against the false accusations. They're saying 
that my ministry isn't to you isn't right because of what things what I look like on the outside. But he said, what we really need to talk about is what's on the inside. By the way, what does God want? God wants your heart. He doesn't want our white knuckle submission. He wants a heart that loves him and then therefore will submit. Does Christ control us? So for Paul, he said, I, I want to just help you guys to have a, um, an apologetic, a defense. So look at verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you. So he's trying to let them know, like, hey, it's really not about me, but, but I'm trying to let you know something. I'm trying to give you an opportunity to boast about us, not because, not because of anything in, in myself. It's really that you'll have an answer for those who are talking bad about us, that you can actually defend that what Paul's ministry Actually, what makes Paul's ministry Paul's ministry is that he's doing it out of a pure and sincere heart. That's why Paul, when you look in Corinthians, he doesn't, although it wouldn't have been wrong for him to receive offerings and money and support for the ministry he's done to them, he doesn't do it. Because he wants them to know that I am doing this ministry to you, Corinthian church. I've planted, I've loved, I've, I've treated you like a, like, a, like a spiritual father, and I don't want anything from you. For those of you that are fathers in here, when you feed your kids tonight, right? And when there's dinner on the table, I mean, do, does your five-year-old kind of reach into their little Velcro billfold and kind of reach in and grab some cash, right? And go like, man, Dad, thank you so much. This is great macaroni and cheese, right? That'd be awesome, right? Amen? Wouldn't that be great, right? If my kids were like, man, here's a tip, right? I mean, Dad, I just really appreciate what you're doing. No, they wouldn't do that. Why? Because they know that, that, that it's your responsibility to take care of them. That's what Paul's trying to get across here. That I need to give you something to defend. That, that my heart is right before God in you. And that the ministry I've done to you is right. And that I have, because of the love of Christ, controls me. That's why I'm doing what I do. I'm not here for your money. Now all the false teachers and prophets, that's what they ran it for. For the money. Paul says it's a different deal with me. So we discovered this. The love of Christ controlled Paul to defend the integrity of his ministry for the glory of God, their good, because the judgment day was coming, because it was clear his motives were pure, so that, he, so that they could defend Paul against the false accusations. And number four, all this happened so much so that Paul really didn't even care what they thought about his internal stability, that he really didn't care what they thought about his internal stability. You know what would be one of the things that would be really discouraging to hear is to hear someone say, man, that Nick, he is crazy, right? What an embarrassment. This dude is loose in the noggin. This guy is off his rocker. Wouldn't it be terrible if someone said that about you? Like, for instance, if you work a job, right, and you're working hard, and let's say that you got passed over for some kind of promotion because you heard that someone had said in the company, well, man, that guy, ooh, man, something's loose in his head. Now, Paul going on and defending himself in this way, that would be the accusation that people would make. would be like, man, something's loose in his head. He's over here defending how pure he is. He's over here defending his heart. Man, something's wrong with Paul. And Paul's willing to risk it because in the end, it's really not about himself. It's about the glory of God and the good of others. So if you look at verse 13, look what he says. For, we, for if we are out of our mind, <laughs> you get that? If we are out of our mind. So Paul's just saying, you may think I'm out of my mind for doing this. I'm going to risk saying something to you about this, and I may get accused of being out of my mind. But in the end, I don't care. 
Either, he says this, if we're out of our mind, it is for who? He said, so if you think I've, I've lost it and I'm off my rocker, it was, for, it was for God that I did this. And then he says this, or if we're in the right mind, if you perchance happen to realize my motives are pure in the ministry I've done, I'm in the right mind, it is for who? Paul's like, hey, you're going to say I'm crazy for me writing a letter like this, defending my ministry like this, and you may say I'm crazy, where do you think I'm out of my mind? Then fine, I'm doing it for the Lord. If you think I'm in my right mind, then fine. Then you would know for truly I'm doing it for you. But in the end, it didn't really matter for Paul because Christ is controlling him. The love of Christ is what's sitting in the seat. That's what's driving everything. When Christ is controlling us, when he is driving, when it's all about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, when it's about the gospel message, you won't care what people think about you as much. You won't. Now, I'm not talking about some prideful arrogance that's like, well, I never cared about what anybody what I'm talking, thought about me. It's this idea of all of life is about loving God and loving others. And all of life is about pouring oneself out as a sacrifice, as a drink offering, as a burn offering. So now we end our message with this idea. Go back to verse 14 and 15. Take a look at it. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That he died for all so that they who live, those who accept the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, those who, have, who are elect, who have the application of the cross in their life, those who live shall no longer live for, verse 15, what does it say? For themselves, but for him who died and rose again. So the end, why did Paul want them to, the, I think the biggest point, why did he want to, defend his ministry. The love, why did the love of Christ control Paul? For many reasons, but Paul couldn't help that the love of Christ controlled him. He couldn't help it. Why could he not help it? Because he was weak. So here's the deal. I wrote in on this earlier, right? Does it look like I'm walking around okay, right? Now, if I would have walked up here and been like, you know, oh, you know, you might have been like, okay, Nick, I'll let you ride that thing around. You're probably going a little too far with it, but I'd, I'd let you ride it around. But the truth is this. Who are the people that actually need to be riding in this chair today? Who would it be? What kind of people? Yeah, elderly. It, it would maybe someone who can't walk. Maybe someone who has a broke foot. Maybe someone who is really messed up. Maybe someone who's weak. So the, the, the real idea is this. Paul's getting across this idea that does the love of Christ control you? And if you're in Christ, it can't help to control you. Why is that? Because the true essence is this. All of our legs are weak. All of our legs are weak. So this is the wonder of the, of the, the whole book of Corinthians, but even the wonder of the gospel is the gospel isn't for strong people. It's for weak people. The gospel is not for perfect people. It's for sinners. It's not those that are whole that need a physician, but those that are sick. So here are the people that can truly like, be controlled by Christ, the love of Christ. It's only those who realize they're weak and that they have no strength and that they rely completely on the work of the cross. And they rely completely on the work of the cross, not only for their salvation but for every day to be transformed into his image, for every day to be renewed through the word and spirit and the graces of the local church. That's, it's for the weak. This chair 
It's for the weak. How does a person be controlled by Christ and Christ alone when a person realizes their need, that they're weak, that they need him? Right? Amen? That's how you're controlled by Christ. But we're not controlled by Christ when we think we're strong, when we think we've got it. When we, when we do that, really life just ends up being more and more about ourselves. And no wonder your world, our worlds burn up when that happens. There's nothing like being able to be controlled by Christ, by realizing, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, I have what I have. And by the grace of God, I'm saved. And by the grace of God, I'm growing. And by the grace of God, I'll do everything that God has called me to do. Because when I'm weak, then he is strong. Would you stand together and could we pray over this? Father, if there is someone, would you pray with me? If for, would you pray right now in your spirit if someone's here and is not in Christ, is lost? Could we just take a moment to pray for that person? Maybe, honestly, maybe there's someone that's your neighbor or someone. When I say neighbor, that can be anybody. That can be your aunt, your uncle, the person across the street. Could be the person on your kid's ball team. Could be anybody. Could you pray for that person right now? And I want to I do this. If you're here and Jesus is not yours, you have not repented, re- realized that you can't save yourself, that you deserve judgment, but Christ took judgment in your place. Maybe you've never trusted him as Savior. I want to I share with you a prayer that you can pray this to the Lord even now, and if you mean it, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to pray this prayer just over you. Just follow me in it in your own heart if, if you're not in Christ. Jesus, thank you for hearing my prayer. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. It's clear. I've lied. I've worshipped other gods. Dishonored my mother and father. I've lusted. I've been angry. I'm a murderer at heart. I've rebelled against you. I see my sin. I see that that the substances of life have been my God and not you. I have built altars to false gods all around. Will you save me? Come into my life. Come into my heart. I, I trust by faith that you've given the grace of the work of the cross that you've died for my sin, that you've given me your perfect life on my account. I trust you. Come into my life and heart. Let me live for you. Let me follow you. Let me be your disciple. Now with our heads bowed, eyes closed, if that's you and you've done that, maybe you prayed that just now, would you please let someone know today, God wants you to take the next step. As I close this prayer off, let me pray for the rest of us. God, we are people who are weak and needy. The greatest joy is sitting in a position of the seed of Christ where the love of Christ is controlling the direction of our life. May it be so. May there be such humility that we could defend even our position in Christ like Paul did from a very difficult thing to do, but What weakness and humility could a man do such a thing? God, would you let it be true in our life? Please let it be. Now bless our time of singing, our time of, in a minute, we're going to eat a meal. We're going to have a time to build up the body, and we need this. 
My soul needs it. Our body needs this. So do it. Bless the time that we now respond back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.